0: following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now if you will take your Bibles and turn uh, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, again today. And as you're turning over there, I just want to remind everyone that we also have an evening worship service. Uh, we meet here at 6 o'clock, and we've been going through the book of Daniel uh, in the evening, and, this, and tonight will be the last sermon in the book of Daniel, God willing. We finally come to the end, uh, the end of chapter 12. So that's at 6 o'clock uh, this evening. All right, picking up again today uh, where we were last week at verse 37 of Luke chapter 11, and I'll read down to verse 54. So follow with me as I read. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so... He went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have? Uh, You remember we looked at the meaning of the actual Word that is used there in Greek, and the idea is giving such alms of inward things, giving your inward self to the Lord, and then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering you in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, The scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning and as we come, we are very much uh, uh, conscious of our great need of your Holy Spirit to come upon the preached word Help us to understand it, to understand its relevance and its application to each of our lives here today. May you be glorified, may your, your church be sanctified, and may the lost be converted. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the prodigal son, uh, the parable of the prodigal son is probably one of my favorite parables, and I imagine it's probably the, uh, the favorite parable of many of us, Uh, here today who who knows something about the parables of our our Lord. And usually when we think about the parable of the prodigal son, and often when it's preached, the focus is on the prodigal uh, who left home. The rebellious son who left home and he lived a life of sin and debauchery. But then when his party life had left him in a state of uh, destitution and misery, he came to himself and he repented and he returned home And the father freely forgave him and received him with open arms and threw a big party to receive him. But remember, in the parable, that father had two sons. And both of them were wayward, just in different ways. The other son remained home, doing his duty, serving his father, but not serving him with a heart of love and from the heart, but with a kind of mercenary, self-righteous spirit. Believing that he deserved and had earned whatever he had. And so he was angry when the father received and forgave his profligate, undeserving brother and threw a party for him. It upset him. He was angry about it. Well, remember the context of that parable. The scribes and Pharisees had been criticizing the Lord Jesus for receiving sinners and eating with them. And the elder son in the parable is intended to be a picture of them. And really, in some ways, that's really the main thrust of the parable. Now, both sons, you see, in that parable were wayward. Someone has put it this way. One son was lawless. The other was legalistic. The conduct of one was disgraceful. The conduct of the other was graceless. However, it was the prodigal who repented and found mercy. The other son who felt deserving Remained outside. And it reminds us again of the saying that I mentioned last week that sin has slain its thousands, but self righteousness has slain its tens of thousands. It also reminds us that one can look very good on the outside and still be terribly wrong on the inside. Well, as we return this morning to where we left off in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come again for a second time to these strong words. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and then to their allies, the lawyers. Now, when it mentions lawyers, you're not think about trial lawyers or something like that. But these were the theologians, the doctors of the law, uh, the, the doctors of theology he's referring to there. Now, the Pharisees, as we saw last week, just to review, going to give some review to bring us up to date. I remind you that they were a social and religious party in Israel during the time of our Lord, who in fact represented the best and the most conservative of the religious parties in Israel at that time. In fact, in the minds of many people uh, of the time, the Pharisees were the good guys. They put great emphasis on seeking to be moral and upright in their behavior and on keeping God's law and the oral traditions that had been handed down by the fathers. They had a major part in the organizing and the functioning of the synagogues where the people would gather together to study the scriptures and to worship. They were the chief proponents of a strong, biblically-based education. They also protested against the corruption of religion. And unlike uh, the the Sadducees, as I explained to you last week, who were kind of the theological liberals of the time, unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body and angels, the final judgment, and so on. They were the theological conservatives they were generally considered to be the most holy people in Israel. They were the good people, one might have thought. We might have thought that these are the folks that Jesus would enjoy being around and that he would appreciate uh, more than anyone else. And yet, as we read the New Testament, we find that it's the Pharisees who are set before us, uh, as they're set before us in the Gospels, as those Jesus confronts and exposes and reproves more than anyone else. Indeed, Jesus reserved his harshest words, not for tax collectors and harlots and notorious sinners, but for the self-righteous Pharisees, the purists and theological conservatives of his day who were yet strangers to the grace of God. Now let me review quickly what we covered last week. First of all, we have Jesus here accepting an invitation to dinner from a Pharisee. Very nice thing for the man to do. He invited Jesus into his home for dinner, and Jesus went in, and he sat down to eat. But then secondly, we have Jesus disregarding expected conduct. Verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. He marveled that Jesus did not wash his hands before eating. The Pharisee was shocked about that. This is... uh, Uh, Bad manners. This is socially unacceptable, but it was a lot more than that was much more than that the real issue here was not Personal hygiene. I remind you it was not about germs. The issue was ceremonial purity This was a religious thing for the Pharisees. It was about being holy and avoiding defilement It was a moral issue in their thinking therefore before they had anything to eat uh, they would engage in a kind of hand cleansing ritual And it was all about staying clean, uh, ceremonially pure, holy. In their minds, if you're a godly man, you wash your hands in the prescribed way before eating. But Jesus didn't do it. And this Pharisee was scandalized by this. And as we saw last week again, the problem was the Pharisees had elevated this tradition of hand washing to the level of a moral requirement, a command of God. But when Jesus did not engage in the hand-washing ritual, he wasn't violating a command of God. The only thing he was violating was a man-made rule that had been elevated by these people to a mark of true godliness. And I believe he did it on purpose on this occasion. In fact, as I said, I think last week, I think it's very possible that uh, since this is what the Jews did, Mark says this is what apparently most all of the Jews would do Uh, I think it's very possible that most of the time Jesus washed his hands, but on this occasion he didn't, certainly knowing that it would produce a reaction, a reaction that would then provide the opportunity for for him to address some things that he wanted to address. And so we then have thirdly this long section in which Jesus denounces religious hypocrisy. In his love for God, and his love for the souls of men, and we think of Jesus as, as sinless. His love for God was, was perfectly pure, and, and it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was perfect. His love for the souls of men, and in his love for God, his love for the souls of men, he uses this occasion to speak some very strong words. He doesn't hold back here. In fact, there's, there's, there's sternness here. There's sharpness in his words, because Jesus knows what's at stake in this, and his words are also for us, even for those of us who are already in Christ, already believers in the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus loves us, he's warning us here by exposing the kind of hypocrisy and self-righteousness that lurks within our hearts. It's still there in some measure, even in those who are in Christ. There's a Pharisee in every one of us that we need to see. We need to be made aware of so that we might repent repent that we might be constantly driven to the Lord Jesus and to the cross to find forgiveness in his blood and to seek grace and mercy from Christ by his spirit to be more like him from the inside, from the inside out. So how does Jesus respond to the Pharisee who was offended because he didn't wash his hands? Well, he uses it as an occasion to expose the folly of Pharisaic religion. Now, we didn't have time last, last week to cover all the issues that Jesus addresses and all the woes that he pronounces, and so we come back to this this morning. And again, as I, as I said last week, <clears throat> as we look at these things, let us make it our prayer, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Show me, Lord, the various ways that I may be guilty of being like the Pharisees. Jesus makes four specific criticisms of the Pharisees in verses 39 to 44 and then down to verse 52, he follows with three specific criticisms of the lawyers. Now last week we only had time to consider the first one. So as we pick back up with this today, remember here is our question. How can I know when I'm being a hypocrite? Or how can I know when I when or when am I like the Pharisees? What are the marks of Pharisaic religion? The first one, which we opened up last time, was when I'm more concerned with outward appearances than I am with the inward condition of my heart. In verses 39 to 41, Jesus reproved the Pharisees for being very concerned about outward behavior and outward appearances while neglecting the state of their hearts. And this is the state of your heart. That is most important, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that was last week. We opened all of that up in some detail. And now we're ready to pick up with the second mark of Pharisaic religion that Jesus reproves. The first, when you're more concerned with outward appearance than with the inward condition of your heart. And now, the second. When you major on the minors and minor on the majors. When you major on the minors and minor on the majors, or perhaps we could put it this way, when I'm very concerned, very strict, and perhaps even extreme, when it comes to religious acts or practices or issues that are relatively minor, but those things that are much more weighty and much more important are completely neglected. Majoring on the minors while minoring on or Or completely neglecting the major. So, picking up now where we left off, we're at verse 42 today. Jesus says, verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. Now, that word translated woe, it's not so much a word of anger. We might think it is, but that's really not the idea behind the word. It's a word expressing pain and pity and horror. I say, oh, how dreadful and how sad, Jesus says. Verse 42 Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others. Notice, first of all, what the Pharisees did. For you tithe, mint, and rue and all manner of herbs. Now, the Pharisees were great sticklers when it came to tithing. Now, tithing was something commanded in the Old Testament. Members of the covenant community were to give one-tenth of their income and their produce or their produce to support the worship and the work of God's house. And I believe that principle is still an applicable principle today. And the Pharisees were very committed to this. They were so conscientious about this, we might even say they carried it to a bit of an extreme. They extended their tithing even to include a tenth of the smallest herbs in their gardens. They made a big deal about getting it right when it comes to tithing that's what they did but then notice secondly what they neglected jesus says you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice that has to do with our relationships with our fellow man and love of god while focusing you see on this relatively minor duty of tithing and being very precise, very detailed, and obeying it, even to an extreme, they completely neglected what was hugely more important, treating others justly and love for God. And certainly, loving God and loving others is much more important than tithing. So why be so obsessed with tithing and so concerned to get it right, even down to the smallest herbs in your garden, while you have no, no, no such great concern about truly loving God or about how you treat other people. Jesus then said, these tithing you ought to have done. Nothing wrong with tithing. It's good to tithe. You should tithe. God commands you to tithe. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone you see the problem is they were majoring on the minors while completely neglecting the majors and this so often happens sadly it's it's so common even among church going people here's a brother here's brother so and so maybe he's very concerned about tithing or something hey, let's let's try to make it more to home here he's very concerned about attending a good church a reformed church 1689 Reformed Baptist, all the way down the line. If there's ever been a Reformed Baptist, this guy's the Reformed Baptist in every possible way you could be a Reformed Baptist, okay? And he's very concerned that the hymns that are used in worship are doctrinally sound. He's very concerned about making certain that his kids sit still during public worship and are well-behaved in public. And that they memorize their catechism. I mean, they even go beyond the children's catechism. His kids memorize the larger catechism. He's very conscientious about these things. And though he may sometimes take things to a bit of an extreme, in general, that's good that he's conscientious about those things. But at the same time, he's cold and harsh and unkind and quick-tempered. In the privacy of his home, his children and his wife are afraid of him Because you just never know when he's going to blow it. He's liable to to blow up in anger at the smallest provocation. He, He makes certain that his kids never get away with anything. He's big on spanking. And indeed, spanking is important. It has its place. But there also seems to be no compassion. Very little affection in his relationships with his children, with his family. Very little mercy. There also seems to be no true concern and effort to minister to those who are hurting and in need. And very little joy, very little peace and, and delight in God that is evidenced in this person. Just a lot of sternness and he seems to be grumpy and unhappy most of the time. This man is big on the minors. But he passes by justice and kindness and the love of God. He may look good on the outside in public, but there's something terribly wrong on the inside, in his heart. You see this sometimes in churches when there's a big fight or split between people, or even the whole church over some very minor thing. You, you find this division between two people, or even in a church, you think, man, it must be something really, really important, like the doctrine of justification by faith, or, or you know, something like that. And you find out, no, it has to do with the color of the carpet in the church. You know, well, you know, pastor, we, uh, someone says, well, you know, we've got to be good stewards of God's money, and that's very important, and I just believe that we shouldn't purchase this carpet because it's too expensive. Well, no, well, I think it's important that we have carpet that's going to last for a long time, so it's good to spend a little bit more money. And so then there begins to be a division about something like that. Not that it's not, that's not a real biblical principle, both of those principles that we have to wrestle with, but in comparison to loving one another and loving God whose name is drugged through the dirt when churches have arguments and splits over things like that the color of the carpet or the type of carpet that we have is very insignificant you see and it can be numbers of things like this one of the ladies perhaps is very concerned about some minor issue she may even be right on the issue at hand but over that minor thing she's willing to gossip And accuse and cause division between brothers and sisters. Majoring on the minors. While at the same time she doesn't seem to be too concerned about loving her brothers and sisters. Or about loving God. And being concerned for his glory. And his reputation again which is drugged through the mud. When there are divisions in the church over nitpicky things. When am I being a hypocrite? When am I like the Pharisees? When I'm more concerned with outward appearances than with the inward condition of my heart. When I major on the minors and minor on the majors. And then thirdly, thirdly, when you yearn to be recognized and praised by others for your religious acts and accomplishments. When you yearn to be recognized and praised by others for your religious acts and accomplishments. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 43. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. The Pharisees loved recognition. And uh, it was the, uh, the men with the, uh, the best reputations, those who were most known for keeping their hands clean, precisely paying their tithes, those who were noted for their, their public prayers and their fasting and giving of alms and their doctrinal precision, such were given the seats uh, closer to the front in the synagogue. They used to do something similar to this in New England, but it was more based on your social standing and so forth than you had assigned seats in the church. Well, you know, and certain people sat near the front and other people had to sit in the back. Well, the Pharisees would love that kind of seating arrangement. right? All right. Uh, a few of that time who were really highly esteemed uh, of the Pharisees, they actually sat in the front uh, of the congregation, facing the congregation during, the, during the, the gathering to study scripture or worship. Now, let me just say this there is nothing wrong with giving honor to whom honor is due. We're, we're to do, we ought to do that. But the Pharisees themselves, they lived for this, they loved to have this kind of recognition in praise from men. Jesus also mentions here greetings in the marketplace. Now, he's not just talking about, you know, someone saying, hey, how you doing? But he's talking about special greetings of respect. As he puts it in Matthew 23, the parallel passage, Matthew 23, 6 to 7, he said, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. Not just being greeted as a friend, but as a scholar. A doctor of theology, a great teacher of righteousness, an exceptionally pious person. They loved this. They were driven in their piety by this secret longing, you see, to be praised by men. Jesus puts his finger right on it. It's a sickening thing, really. Under the pretense of serving God and seeking to glorify him we can the whole time really be serving ourselves and seeking to glorify ourselves. You see, before we condemn the Pharisees for this and just leave it there, we need to look at ourselves, don't we? This is what God's word is seeking to get us to do this morning. What is it that's really driving my devotion to God? Turn over to Matthew chapter 6 with me just a moment. Where Jesus addresses this, this matter of motive in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And Jesus says, take heed. Now, let me just just say this first of all. The theme of this first half of chapter 6 in our Lord's Sermon is this matter of the practice of righteousness, or... The matter of our practical piety. And certainly as you read this, it's obvious he's thinking of the the kind of Pharisaic religion he goes after back in our text. When he says here in verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. Or another rendering that has strong uh, support is take heed that you do not your righteousness. You'll find that translation before men. To be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The New American Standard has it, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's also been translated, beware of practicing your piety before men to be seen of them. So that's really the theme of the, the first half of, of this chapter. It focuses on this matter of our deeds of devotion and spiritual discipline. And it uses the example, three examples. It uses the example of giving... Verses 2 to 4, which we would call an expression of our devotion to God. And then prayer, verses 5 to 15. And fasting, uh, verses 16 to 18, which are both expressions of devotion, but also are disciplines of the Christian life. And so Jesus, in this context, he's talking about our deeds of religious devotion and discipline, those practices, okay, by which spiritual life is expressed, And by which it's sustained. Now, he's not talking about how spiritual life is acquired. Giving, praying, fasting, any other form of devotion or or good deeds or good works can never give us spiritual life. Spiritual life is the sovereign gift of God by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. I must be born of the Spirit and be united by faith to Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in John eleven twenty five: he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You see, you can give alms and you can pray and you can discipline your physical appetites until you are nothing but skin and bones. But it will never give you spiritual life. You'll find just like Martin Luther did and George Whitfield did before they actually came to understand the gospel and to believe the gospel, uh, they that none of those things can give life, none of them can give peace with God. Those men prayed, they fasted, they performed good works to the point of exhaustion. Both of them about killed themselves, trying to come into fellowship with God and to be saved by their works, but they discovered that life and peace and salvation doesn't come by these things. Life comes by looking as a lost sinner to the Son of God by faith in him alone. As scripture says, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. But though spiritual life is given as a free gift of God's grace, through faith In Jesus Christ, as he is freely offered to us in the gospel, that spiritual life is sustained and it is nourished uh, by practical disciplines, practical disciplines of prayer and so on. And it's also expressed by giving and by other acts of righteousness. But here's the problem. Even unregenerate, spiritually dead people can perform outward acts of righteousness. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They gave, they prayed, they fasted, and all of the rest, but they were spiritually dead. And nothing they did was out of out of a faith-given confidence in the mercy and grace of God given to them in the gospel through Christ or looking at the old covenant uh, revelation of the gospel pointing to Christ. Nothing that they did was out of that that confidence of acceptance with God, not on the basis of their works but on the basis of what God had done in His grace for them, and none of it was as out of a desire for God's praise and God's glory and out of true love for God in their heart. It was all done to glorify themselves. they did their righteousness to be seen of men. Now we need to be careful here if we're going to interpret this properly. Jesus says, do not practice your piety before men. But if you look at the text, he doesn't stop there. You see, there is a sense in which we are to be concerned to live righteously before men. and We have to understand Jesus here in a way that's consistent with everything that the Bible teaches and everything else that Jesus says. says. Indeed, what he just said just a few verses over in the previous chapter, in chapter 5. You remember chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine, what, before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But then here he says, Take heed that you do not your righteousness before men. Now, is there a contradiction here? No, but we we have to finish the statement. We have to interpret it as well in light of, uh, the full teaching of Scripture. He says, Take heed that you do not do your righteousness before men to be seen of them. Or we could translate it with a view toward being looked at, gazed upon by them. Uh, the idea is with a view toward attracting their attention and their applause. You see, the issue here is motive. Motive. Jesus in our text back in Luke and also here in Matthew is not teaching that it's wrong to perform deeds of righteousness in a context where someone might see us. I mean, if, we, if you were to understand it that way, your conscience would be tied up in knots all the time. And you'd probably think, I guess I better go live in Egypt somewhere in a cave and stay away from mankind, right? No, he's not. He's not teaching wrong to perform deeds of righteousness where someone might see them or that we must only do righteous deeds in secret. And he's not condemning the fact that men know that we have spiritual life by seeing uh, this expressed in our outward lives. No, we are to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We are to be concerned to bring glory to our Father. But you see, that's the issue. Our concern is not to be bringing glory to ourselves. And when it is, I'm being a Pharisee. You see, that's the issue. What's your real motive? To bring glory to God or to bring glory to yourself? If we turn back to our text in Luke, verse 43 of chapter 11, this is what Jesus is exposing here. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. That was the dominant motivation of their hearts, the desire for recognition. Recognition. The desire to be looked up to. The desire to be praised by men. And Jesus is telling us that the real test of who you really are. The real test of the reality and the quality of your relationship to God. Is not merely what you do. It also has to do with why you do it. Your motives. It's very searching, isn't it? It's supposed to be, supposed to be. Jesus wants us to see the Pharisee that's lurking within, within every one of us, that we might be humbled, that we might see how desperately we need him, his blood to cleanse us from our wickedness, how much we need to be born again and changed on the inside by his spirit, and how much we need his spirit To work in us, to help us, to mortify these evil desires and these motives that that war against our souls. Jesus spoke in another place of the Pharisees sounding a trumpet whenever they did a charitable deed. We sometimes use the language of tooting your own horn. It probably came from that. Uh, So, dear friend, are there ways in which you sound trumpets? Toot your own horn to advertise your good deeds, promote yourself and your spiritual reputation before men. It happens all the time on Facebook. It's kind of sickening sometimes, isn't it? Instagram it happens in church and Jesus is telling us that it's ugly. It's perversion and that there's a danger of drawing an inaccurate conclusion about yourself in thinking that you are so much more righteous than you really are because you only think about the outward deed and you forget about the state of your heart, the reason you do the things you do. Quote, quoting Philip Ryken here, "'We want people to notice what we are doing for the Lord. "'Even if we say we do not care for recognition,' secretly we glory in people's praise. If we are making progress in some spiritual discipline, we want people to know about it. We gain a sense of self-importance from our ministry, especially in comparison to others. Sometimes even the difficulties we acknowledge when we ask for prayer are a way to gain sympathy for all the hard work that we are doing for God. Then... By the way, here's a good test of your motive. He says, then when people fail to give us the attention we think we deserve, we grow resentful. We say, nobody even notices what I'm doing. I'm just as gifted as so-and-so. I should have the same place of ministry. I'm not sure it's worth, it's worth this anymore. Here I am doing all this work, and I never get any credit And Reichen goes on to point out, Jesus shows us a different way to live. He teaches us to be faithful in service, to take the lowest place, to give other people credit, to make our sacrifices in secret, to wait patiently for him to put us in the positions where we belong. Brothers and sisters, Jesus teaches us to live this way because this is the way he lived. And true holiness is becoming more and more like him. When am I like a Pharisee? When I'm more concerned with outward appearances than with the inward condition of my heart. When I major on the minors and minor on the majors. When I yearn to be recognized and praised by others for my righteous deeds and accomplishments. And then fourthly, and this is as far as we're going to get this morning... God willing, we'll look at what Jesus says to the the lawyers next time. But fourthly, I'm like a Pharisee. You're like a Pharisee. I'm like a Pharisee. When your religious hypocrisy, though you attempt to carefully conceal it, has a defiling influence on others around you. Now, the meaning of this particular woe, the next one he mentions, is not, not immediately clear on the surface. It requires a little careful thinking remember again the setting now just try to imagine the scene here okay try to imagine here's jesus in the pharisee's house sitting or reclining as they did then at the table to have dinner with him and he looks straight at this man across the table and he says verse 44 woe to you pharisees hypocrites for you are like graves which are not seen you're like unmarked graves, not very flattering, right, to say the least. And then he says, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Well, we need a little bit of background here to interpret this properly. In the Old Testament, according to Numbers nineteen sixteen, whoever touched a person who had died or touched a bone of a man or a grave was considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. For a whole week. As you know, the Old Testament had a number of these kinds of ceremonial regulations, and ceremonial uh, uncleanness was a picture of what is much worse moral uncleanness. But under the Old Covenant, these kinds of regulations were given to teach and to point the Israelites to their need for the true cleansing from sin that only the blood of Christ can give, and also to mark them off and to keep them separate from the surrounding peoples. Now, we're not bound by these ceremonial regulations today, but because of these regulations, the Israelites, you know, in applying that and working that out, uh, they were usually very careful uh, to whitewash their graves, the graves of their loved ones. When someone was buried, they whitewashed the graves so that people would see the grave and avoid it and not uh, step on the grave, Right? for fear of being defiled if they did. Well, when Jesus compares the Pharisees here to graves, he's saying that they're not only unclean on the inside, they're dead on the inside. Their hearts were like tombs containing a rotten, stinking corpse on the inside. But he not only compares them to graves, he says, for you are like graves which are not seen. You're not seen. As I mentioned, the Israelites were usually very careful to whitewash their grave markers. That was so they could easily be seen and people could avoid stepping on them and becoming defiled. Well, Jesus says, you Pharisees are like graves that are unmarked. People don't often see it, okay? You're like a grave that's hidden and men walk over it and are defiled without even knowing it. Now, if I'm understanding this correctly, what Jesus is saying is that your hypocrisy has an almost unconscious, defiling influence upon others. Almost unconsciously, without realizing it sometimes. Those around you, those in your family, those with whom you worship worship, and those you work with, they too are defiled by your influence. You see, the Pharise- think, how, is it, how would that happen? Think about this. At least two ways. Remember, the Pharisees were looked up to as the good guys by most of the people in, in the land of Israel. They are the righteous ones. They are the separated ones, the holy ones. And because they had this reputation for being godly, the people tended to follow their example. They looked at the Pharisees and they thought, well, I guess this is what true religion is. You can't get any better than the Pharisees. And so they followed their example and they ended up becoming just like them. So that just like the Pharisees, they too majored on the minors. They too were satisfied to appear righteous on the outside without any deep concern about the inside. Satisfied to engage in outward religious practices when there was no reality in their hearts, no humility no repentance, no self-despairing uh, trust in God's mercy alone as their only hope. No kindness and love for God or for others. That was some, but there were others, okay? Others in Israel. And perhaps there were more like this. That's one way that their influence was defiling, but there's another way. There were others in Israel, no doubt some of those who were a little more savvy, Okay? A little more observant. A little more uh, perceptive. And for them, the example of the Pharisees made them cynical. Cynical. Turned them against the Bible. Hardened them with an attitude that said, if this is what it means to follow God, I don't want nothing of it. These were people who, who could see through it, you know. They could see through the hypocrisy of it all. And brothers and sisters, there are a lot of people like that. Out in the world today, they once attended church perhaps for a good while. Perhaps they were raised in a Christian family. Even made a profession of faith at some point in their lives. But so much of the kind of Christianity that they were exposed to, whether it was in their home or in the church, was of a pharisaic kind and they could see through it and were turned off and sickened by it and they've left the church and have become hardened to the gospel now i'm not saying that it's right for them to reject christianity or to reject the gospel it's not right for anyone to turn away from jesus christ because of the hypocrisy of some of those who claim to be his followers No, people will fail you, and they will disappoint you, but people are not Christ, right? So there's no real excuse for rejecting Christ. However, at the same time, Pharisees in the church and a Pharisaic spirit in the home often have a defiling influence and are used by the devil to drive people away and to keep them away from the Lord Jesus quoting and again. How ironic, and it is ironic. Think about how ironic this is. The very men who were trying to keep things spiritually clean were in fact sources of spiritual defilement. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was deadly to other people's souls. Well, we've looked at How many of them now? Four of them. We've got three more to go. How do we respond to these things? How do we respond to this? Do we get angry? Get angry with Jesus for exposing us? That's the way the Pharisees, we're going to see next week, that's the way they responded. It just made them mad. They were mad at Jesus for exposing them for who they really were. They refused to humble themselves. And instead, in, in their pride, they, they were angry. But no, my friends, don't get angry. And also, don't despair. That's not the right response. Now, Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell us these things to lead us to despair. Now, well, maybe we could say despair of ourselves, Yes. Despair of our own righteousness and its sufficiency to make us right with God. Yes, but don't despair in a kind of hopeless despair. No, Jesus tells us these things here in His Word, and even in speaking to these Pharisees. He tells us these things to drive us into His loving arms of mercy, where there is forgiveness and mercy for sinners who humble themselves and confess their sinfulness and there is grace and power to change us and to begin to change us truly in our hearts and from the inside out. Jesus exposes our guilt in order that we might find forgiveness at the cross where he took the debt of our sin and our hypocrisy upon himself and he was punished in our place. He exposes our nakedness in order that we might run to him And be clothed in his righteousness. He lances the wound in order that the balm of the Spirit might be poured in and begin to heal us. Jesus pronounces six woes upon the Pharisees and the doctors of theology in this passage. The last three we'll look at, God willing, next time. But there's another woe in the Bible. Another woe in the Bible that illustrates the proper way in which we should respond to our Lord's uh, heart-searching, hypocrisy-exposing teaching here. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, you remember? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up with the seraphim all around him crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, he was devastated. He knew that this God could see right through him. There was no hiding anything from such a God. And seeing the Lord as he did, he was also caused to see himself for the wretched sinner that he was. And what was Isaiah's cry? Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was humbled in repentance, but what happened? You remember God sent one of those seraphim to touch his lips with a coal from off the altar. And these were his comforting words. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin has been purged. Thank God for Jesus Christ who offered himself up on the altar of the cross to take away our sins. So brothers and sisters and friends here today, Believers, unbelievers, maybe you've never come to Christ. You've never been saved. What are we to do? We're to come to him. Saying, woe is me. Woe is me. Jesus, everything you've said is true about me. You don't fight against it. You don't try to say, I'm not, I'm really not that bad. The fact is, you know, when when I talk to people sometimes in counseling and someone will be talking about, you know, how bad they are. And sometimes you pick up and it's a little bit of, they're actually trying to sound righteous because of how they think how bad they are. I found it helpful sometimes to say, you know, yeah, you know, you're really a whole lot worse than you think you are. Because it's true, isn't it? Woe is me. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, a sinner. Pardon my iniquity. Take me and make me and mold me more and more into your likeness, however humbling and painful that process may sometimes be. I want to close with an illustration from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader by CS Lewis. I'm not going to get into debates about what everybody might think about CS Lewis, but the illustration here I think is, is very good. Okay. This is actually uh, as told by uh, Tom Havestle, in his book, Extreme Righteousness, Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. C.S. Lewis paints a vivid portrait, those of you who have read that book will remember, of a greedy, snobby character named Eustace, who in some ways was a lot like the Pharisees. In the story, Eustace is turned into a dragon, a fitting reflection of his character, when he was forced to face what he had become, he realized what a fool he'd been. He longed to be undragoned and change back into a little boy. He wept, worked hard to behave differently with some, you know, I'd say kind of surface level success, but no loss of his dragon skin. Then he attempted to forcibly scratch off his skin But each time he did, a new layer appeared. Isn't that the way indwelling sin is? The harder he tried to scratch it off, just a new layer appeared. After several rounds of trying to strip off his dragon skin, he gave up. At this point, disillusioned and desperate, Eustace met Aslan, the lion, as you know, the Christ figure in the story. Aslan told Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. The fearful boy slash dragon watched in fear. Quoting from the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But Aslan peeled off more and more skin, and finally he threw Eustace's now stripped, sensitive body into a well, cleansed. Then the great Aslan... Like Christ, dressed Eustace in a brand new set of clothes. Eustace had met Aslan, his savior and lord, we could say with a small s and a small l. And Lewis concludes with these words. And I'll I'll, I'll conclude with these words as well. He says, it would be nice, it would be nice and fairly true to say From that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. That's what Christ does. For those who receive his rebukes, humble themselves, repent, and run to him for mercy. May God bless his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for the searching words of our Lord. And we pray that you would continue to search us as we continue. Should the Lord tarry in the weeks to come to work our way through this portion of your holy word. We pray that your word will do its work in every single one of us according to the need of each one. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you are edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org That's ebcfl.org